Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 1, Born of a Virgin, Part 2. Now we're in the book of Luke, but I want you to turn there. So we're using Luke right now as a jumping off spot because we've started this discussion, conversation, one way, of the virgin birth. Last time we were together, and we're going to continue in that theme this morning. Uh, such a big topic, uh, such a big issue, so vitally important. Instead of turning to Luke, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And we're going to be looking at verse 41 through 45 here in just a bit. We said last time the amazing thing about the virgin birth has always been a teaching of the Bible, always been a teaching of the New Testament church. Uh, been a teaching of the Bible both Old and New Testament. In fact, one of the earliest prophecy in the Bible is that of the virgin birth. The earliest mention, mentioned birth in the Bible before Adam and Eve ever leave the Garden of Eden is not the mention of their sons they're about to have, but it's a mention of the virgin birth. Incredibly important prophecy. Uh, uh, as important as that prophecy is, as important as the reality of the virgin birth is, it's amazing to me how many people who call themselves Christians, and I say that carefully, uh, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they acknowledge many miracles, and yet they, don't, they have a problem with the virgin birth. And I'm amazed at that because on, one, on the one hand, if you call yourself a Christian and accept the Bible, you are, you are swallowing a bunch of miracles. I mean a bunch of them. Like a load of them. And so I'm not sure how you can accept some miracles and then take your editor's pen and edit others out. I'm just not really sure where. So if you start editing, where do you stop? And I'm not sure what you think about yourself, your capacity to edit um, that which is otherwise known as God's Word. I would suggest to you that's a very dangerous thing to do. It is, it is the habit, not to call you this necessarily, of hypocritical liars who have changed the Word of God to meet their own desires. I wouldn't want to be a part of I don't want to be them, neither do you. Be careful what you do with the Bible. Just a word of warning. It's not my warning. I did not write it. But I'm telling you, this book carries tremendous curses upon those who, who fiddle with it. Let it say what it says, as I said many times. Say you don't believe it. That is your prerogative. Uh, not a good prerogative. Not a good decision. But a worse decision is to say that it doesn't say what it clearly does say. That you've edited or made a quilt out of it or whatever. Do not do that. So, so the same crowd, it's interesting, that we have today that claim to be Christians, that claim to follow the Bible, and yet want to edit out things like, the, in, in particular, the virgin birth. And why pick on that? Uh, like I said, there's a demonic reason for that, because it undermines all the teachings of Christianity. If there's no virgin birth, there is no relevance to his death and resurrection. None. He's unable to save you. He is not a Savior, because he's not God's Son, because he's not virgin-born. And no, you cannot dispense with that doctrine. You cannot. And keep Jesus. You cannot. Not the biblical Jesus. So the same camp, though, is interesting, existed because, it's, like I said, it's the same demons. They've been here all this time. People die and go away. Demons do not. Same demons are around tricking the same people. So we have a very uh, conservative group that were in the religious power in the days of Jesus. And you'll know their names. They're called the Pharisees. They were very conservative. I would suggest to you maybe more conservative about the Bible than half the people in this room. And I don't mean that, I'm not criticizing your, your belief system, I just think that they could walk and talk right over the top of you when it comes to the Bible. They, they knew the middle letter of the Bible. Do you know that? 
You don't know the middle word or even the middle chapter, do you? Psalm 119, by the way. So there. I don't know the middle letter either. I've got time to count it. They knew it in the Hebrew. They were so legalistic, though, so they'd gone so far past what is considered reasonably conservative to the point of feeling like they have to shove their doctrine down the throats of everybody and create doctrine on top of that. Um, so, so this same camp exists in the days of Jesus, who, who on the one hand were happy to affirm that the Messiah, the Christ, remember Christ is not his name, it is a title, it is just the Greek equivalent of Messiah, it's a title they gave to all their kings. The, the, the Christ, the Messiah, happy to affirm that he descended from David. Of course he did, because the promises to David are there. They didn't have a problem with him being a man. They had a huge problem with him being God, albeit their Bible, the Old Testament, clearly taught it. I want us to watch how Jesus holds them to what their Bible actually says, even though it differs with their agreed-upon doctrine. Watch. Verse 41, it says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, these are these staunch conservatives, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Correct answer. It's not the full answer. But so far, you're correct. And so he's going to hold them down to not only is the Messiah supposed to be a man, he's also supposed to be God by referring to their own Bible that teaches the very same thing. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? It's referring to the Psalms. Calls him Lord. Right here in the Psalms, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord. So there's two lords? Yeah. In the Bible. And they're one and the same. Sit at my right hand, and yet there are two. Sit at my right hand, the Father says to the Son, until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it says they couldn't answer him that question. They quit asking him questions because... Um, because he cornered them. Notice, unwilling to change their theology, unwilling to change it. Now, it's okay if you come across something in the Bible that disagrees with what you've believed. That should happen. You should expect that. You should expect God to be correcting you all the time, not only just the way you believe, but also the way you think and the way that you act. And that's a process that we're all in collectively, including me. I have not arrived. I will, when I'm arrived, you'll see me in heaven. That's how you'll know Pastor Bill now has all the correct theology, because I will be up there. I currently don't have the correct theology. Mine may be better than yours. Hopefully it is at least that I'm ahead of you on this Sunday. Now next Sunday I'll be ahead of you on something else. But, but we, we're not in, it's not in any kind of race here. We're all trying to achieve the, the knowledge of, of God's Son fully and, and rest in Him fully and all the things the Scripture teaches us. So, so at the same time, as we come across something that corrects the way we believe, the way we act, the way we think, let it correct you. If it disagrees with what you've taught, what your mama taught, what your church that you love taught, let that doctrine that you were taught fall. And let the scriptures reign supreme. Let them do that. Else you become an editor to the text, just like they did. Just like so many other groups have. And like I said, it is not a good thing to edit the text of scripture. So, so the only way, listen, that Jesus could be God, the Son of God, is to be born of God. Thus it necessitates... A virgin birth. The only way that he could be the Son of God is to be born of God. The only way he could be the Son of God, here's the problem the Pharisees had, is to be equal with God. They understood that. Do we understand that? Like I said, we are willing to call him the Son of God, and yet we think he's, he's the Son of God, but he's not God. you got a bad theology. Watch. 
John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, calling, this is another name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning what? The beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 of your whole Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the same scenario John's describing here. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How long has God existed? Forever. So Jesus has forever existed. Now speaking of editing, the Jehovah's Witnesses edit the Bible right here. They have their own Bible. It's not the Bible you're holding. They edit it by adding a word in here. Instead of saying the word was God, they said the word was a God, little g. Don't edit the scriptures. Because you come with different conclusions. And by the way, casting a lot of curses upon yourself in the process. He was in the beginning with God and was God, right? And all things came into being through him. I thought God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, he did. His name is Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the word, again talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us through a virgin's womb. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So understand, Jesus wasn't created. He took on flesh in the virgin's womb, but he wasn't created because he's God. He's the creator, right? Again, the scripture clearly teaches this. He took on flesh and became one of us so he could take our place. It's called the incarnation. The incarnation is so critical. So I'm a human being and you're a human being and we've committed sin and someone has to take our place and animals can't do it. It has to be an equivalent. It has to be another human being. But only God can save, and so what has to happen? God has to become a man. And that's exactly what happens, and we call it the doctrine of incarnation. But understand, the hinge of the incarnation is a virgin named Mary, in whose womb was conceived a son apart from a man by the power of God, who is the Savior of the world. So, the virgin birth. We need to back up a little bit. Before we discuss our Savior and our salvation, we need to back up and kind of understand, before we understand the nature of those things, understand the nature of the God that we serve. Who is God? What does it really mean to be Him? Well, the world is full of gods, is it not? Full of them, little g's everywhere. God this and God that. There's all kinds of gods. It stands to reason. I mean, so how do we know there is a real God? Well, one of the ways you know there's a real God is because there's so many counterfeits. There's got to be a real one out there somewhere in the myriads of these gods that were created. And again, Satan is, is demonstrating to you his ploy and his process. So he took very seriously in the Garden of Eden that God was going to, through a virgin's womb, was going to create a victor, a savior to crush his head. He took it very seriously. And so in order to flood the market... In order to deceive, he creates these religions of all kinds and multiple gods, and many of which, as it describes, as we saw last time, are these supposed virgin-born situations, so that when the real virgin-born Son of God does come to the world, what's happened? They've already flooded the market, you see. Oh, we've already got one of those, you see. We've got ten of those. We've got a thousand of those. Different names, different circumstances, languages change, but the religion is exactly the same. Again, it is demonically inspired and, and empowered, these counterfeits. Counterfeit gods, listen, are nothing short of demons. Nothing to be trifled with. They're not just no big deal. They are a big deal. Look at what Paul says. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to an idol, that would be something made out of stone or out of wood or covered in gold or whatever? That things sacrificed to these physical things, 
or that an idol is anything? Of course it isn't. It's a statue, okay? The statue's not your problem. It's what's behind the statues that's the problem. No, but I say to you, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to, hello, demons, and not to God, and do not want you to become sharers in demons. I appreciate that. Don't be a sharer in demons. Behind these, these physical things are literal entities that your eyes can't see and your ears can't hear that are very powerful and very deceptive and been around a long time and are creating counterfeit after counterfeit after counterfeit after deception and bombarding you constantly. But it's not necessary that you create some kind of physical idol in order to be following a demon theology. Because ultimately, if you recreate Jesus in your head, for instance, that Jesus is not virgin born, that's, that's a demon, guys. And you're listening to doctrines of demons. Because the Jesus of the Bible, you've not, you're not worshiping Jesus of the Bible. You're worshiping a created Jesus you've come up with or some demon has come up with. And it's a lie. And they are liars. And you become a part of the lie when you participate in that kind of doctrine and thought. Run away. You become an editor of the text. Oh, I haven't changed anything in writing. No, you haven't. But you have changed it in the way you believe. You're still an editor. You have a lot of confidence about what's running around between your ears. Let the Bible say what it says, and I strongly suggest, and believe it. Believe it. Is it necessary to believe that Jesus was virgin born? No, it's not. Unless you want to go to heaven. Then, yes it is. Because to believe in a Jesus that isn't virgin born is to, to believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist, or I should say, isn't a part of the Scriptures, which is to place your faith on some other Jesus who, by the way, cannot save you. So yes, if heaven is a priority for you, then yes, it is necessary that you believe that Jesus is virgin born. So let's get back to the nature of God. Israel was not like other nations. She was required to have only one God. Because why? Because, because there is. There is only one God. She only had one God because there is only one God. And the fact that there is is backed up by not only that, but the fact is reinforced by the greatest commandment. You familiar with the greatest commandment? Israel was required to hang on here. Something has happened. Ah, don't read that. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Okay, the greatest commandment, here you go. The Shema of Israel, right. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, how many? Is one, one. There is only one. You shall love, therefore, you can love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why? Because you don't need to reserve anything for any other God, you see. There's not another one to love because there is only one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. I don't know if, if how, how many of you have been on the island. Some of you just now got here and don't know what, probably what I'm talking about or maybe haven't been around many Jews. But if you live here on the island, you go to any of our what we call t-shirt shops who are primarily owned by Israeli Jews, you're going to find on there as you go in the door one of these things. And it's tilted just like that. It's not straight up and down. It's not, I didn't try to fit it on the screen because it didn't fit very well. It, they tilt it like that. What this is called is called a mezuzah. 
a masuza because it tells us, as we saw just a minute ago, this verse, it goes on to say, as God says, you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, bind these words on your foreheads. They would literally take them and put them in a, put them in a little container and strap it on their forehead. Bind these words on, the ha- on your hand, on your doorpost, that. If, if you, this, you could buy this online. This is off of Amazon. I just grabbed this picture. You see the little hole in the bottom, the little screw? You can unscrew that, and if you pay a rabbi enough money, he will give you a blessed piece of script text that he's handwritten that has the, the, this commandment on it. And you can put it up inside that masuzah because it's going to be it's going to bless you better or whatever. That little double you think you see on the front right there is not flames. It's not a crown. It's actually a, a letter in the Hebrew language called the sheen. It's the S-H sound. It's the first letter in this commandment. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, they say. So it's, their, it's called the Shema. This sheen reminds them that there is only one God and that you're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's actually pretty cool. Actually, it's in your Bible. I have one outside the door of my office if you want to come see it. You'll see it in these places, and some people use it for superstitious reasons, and you can turn anything into superstition. But this, as a reminder that God is supposed to be, that God is one and that we're supposed to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think it's, I, I frankly think it's, it's pretty cool. So, so you, you don't have to reserve love for any other deity because there is no other. There is no other. And while they back to the demons, no one knows it better than them. James, you believe God is one? You do well. The demons also believe. And, whoo, gives them the willies. They know exactly who God is. Why do you think they've been about trying to deceive, trying to throw all these different counterfeits out there because they know what the real thing is? So they're trying to divert and deceive and to lie and to cause amnesia and to flood the market and everything they possibly can to lead us away from the truth. But God is one. He's one essence. He's one in nature. And yet he is three persons. I told you last time when we came together that we we're going to be talking about the Trinity. I hope you didn't come thinking I was going to explain the Trinity to you. Because I, I, I appreciate the, it's flattering that you think that much of me. But you need to know Neither could I, nor can I, nor do I expect ever, maybe ever, I don't know about heaven, maybe so, to be able to explain to you the Trinity. And I don't believe anyone else can. And it says very little about God and a whole lot about me. But the fact that he's one and three at the same time, I believe it, because boy, does the Bible teach it. But I cannot explain it to you. I cannot. But boy, as I said, does the Bible teach it. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Did God forget very early on that he was only one? By the way, the word God up there is the word Elohim. It's a plural word. Elohim gods said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And yet God is one? Yes, he is. Again, the same kind of language, Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, Isaiah's call in the ministry, saying, whom shall I send? I, singular, right? And who will go for us, plural? How can he be plural and singular at the same time? Like I said, if you expect me to explain that, I appreciate the flattery, but I can't. 
I can just tell you the Bible clearly teaches it, irrefutably so. And then back to what Jesus was holding the noses of the Pharisees down. Oh, well, I missed a spot there. Before I get to that, Isaiah 48, verse 16. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have spoken in secret. From, from, from time it took place, from the time it took place, I was there, God speaking. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So there's a separation between the spirit of God and the person of God? Yes and no. There's at least two, right? And then now on to what Jesus was holding the Pharisees down for in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, so this is David writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says he's got two lords? I thought there was only one. How did he get away in the Bible of saying one God is actually two? Well, he does because, in fact, he's more than two. So I've got God the Father in the previous chapter first. And God the Spirit, that gives me two. And now I've got God the Father and God the Son. That gives me three. And then, and then when we get to the New Testament, it becomes prolific to that, to that end. After being baptized, so Jesus goes down to John the Baptist and says to John the Baptist, I need to be baptized. And John the Baptist said, what? I need to be baptized by you and not the vice versa. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus came to take our place. What does it mean to take our place? He became one of us. No sin, but he looked just like a sinner. He went right through the baptismal waters, just like all the sinners were doing. Had nothing to repent of, nothing to be cleansed from. And yet he goes through the waters by to fully identify with those he was there to save. So Jesus is baptized. And Jesus came up immediately from the water, so he's under the water. They didn't sprinkle him. They were Baptists. You know, he's John the Baptist. He's not, the Meth he's not a Methodist, you notice. Not a Presbyterian. He Meth Baptist. <laughs> baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water. So he's standing in the water, water running off of him. And behold, the heavens were open, and John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice in the heavens says, This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. So I got God the Son in the water. I got God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And then I have God the Father in the heavens. All at the same time. How many I got? I got, I count three. I count three. John 15, Jesus speaking. He's the night before he's betrayed. So when the helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to send you a helper, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. I thought he was sending him, but now the Father's sending him. And he will testify about me. Notice they're all kind of mixed together there. What one is doing, the other is also doing. That's what it means to be triune in nature. What is true about one is true about the other. The Spirit proceeds from the Father, yes, and from the Son, yes. Explain that to me. You can't do it. And if you think you can, I'm scared of you. I'm telling you for sure. You can't do it. You can't do it in a logical way because it makes no sense. Again, it, it shouldn't surprise us. We're talking about the supernatural here, aren't we? So you're a natural person, and I'm a natural person, and all I can explain to you is natural stuff, and yet we're talking about the supernatural, and we think we're going to get it. No. No, you're not. It is for you to believe, but at least in this life, not to fully understand, to be sure. So I've got three there, right? I've got the Father, 
I got Jesus who's speaking these things, and I got Jesus promising to send a helper who's going to come from the Father, and then I've got the Father, so I, I, I count three. I count three. And, and even more reinforced by our Great Commission. Have you forgotten it? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're equivalents. We're equivocating them. Yes. But I thought there was only one God. Well, there is only one. But he's three persons. Again, I can't tell you how that works, but I can tell you that it certainly is presented that way in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of our Lord, that's one. And the love of the Father, that's two. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That gives me three. Somebody said, oh, well, the Trinity, the word Trinity isn't in the New Testament. No, it's not. Come up with a word. Triune, Trinidad, speak Spanish. Pick a word. Pick a word, but you can't say the Bible doesn't teach it, because it clearly does. It clearly does. So, so now we understand the nature of God as much as we can understand it. He is one, and yet he is three in persons. So now that understanding the nature of God, we can now understand better our, the nature of our Savior, and I guess down to the very crux of the whole thing, the nature of our salvation. In order to do that, I'm going to turn with you here, at least I'm going to do it for you. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 11. Understand, God speaking here, I am he. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. So if you are to be saved and are going to be saved, you're going to have to come to God. There is no other way to save. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save you. No church can save you. There's salvation in no one else except for God. You have to come to Him. He reiterates this in a couple of chapters. Turn to me and be saved. So if you turn anywhere else, guess what? You will not. You cannot. You must turn to God. A, a big question, have you? Have you given up on your religion, given up on your good deeds, given up on all the things that people said good about you, and turned to God fully and trusted Him completely? That has to happen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. So to be saved, you must turn to God, the only true God, and there is no other means of salvation. On the other hand, I should say, added to that, the angel comes to Joseph and says these words to him. Mary, Mary's come to him yesterday and said, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin. He does not believe her. Can't blame him, can we? And then the angel comes to him in the sleep and says these things, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for, that's what his name means, God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, hang on a minute. I just read in the Old Testament that only God saves, and now an angel is turning around and saying that Jesus saves. So either on the one hand, the angel got it wrong, or on the other hand, Jesus is God. See, it necessitates us, it demands us to say, that Jesus is God. And it wasn't the only person who appeared, uh, only angel who, our only person who saw an angel appear and give a similar announcement on the night of Jesus' birth. The angels appear in this whole host as they're out there sleeping in the fields with their flocks by night, right? The, the uh, shepherds. And they come and says, Today in the city of David, there has been born to you what? 
Not a representative of the Savior. Not an angel of the Savior. Not an officially stamped credit card level of application of the real one who's in heaven. None of that. No, the actual Savior. Today, the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ Lord. All those angels either got it wrong or Jesus is God. Or Jesus is God. Isaiah, back to Isaiah 43, 11 and 12, 14. I, even I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. These inferences, of course, are mine. Your Redeemer. So God not only is the Savior, He's the only Savior, He's also the only Redeemer. And then we turn around the New Testament, we read things like this, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse. What does that mean? He has to be God. He can't be anything other than God. And if he's not God, then this is a lie. And by the way, you're dying in your sins. Again, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have what? Redemption. In him, God, I thought, was the only redeemer. Well, then that must therefore make Jesus God. Yeah, we're getting it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. By the way, so, so when a Jehovah's Witness who does not believe this, does not believe that Jesus is God, now, I will say in their defense, they will say that Jesus can redeem you and that Jesus is the Savior. So will a Mormon. But they undermine their position by saying they don't believe that he is, that he is God. Now, have I not demonstrated to you why that's a problem? Because if only God saves and only God redeems, but Jesus isn't God then he cannot save you, and he cannot, he cannot redeem you, and they don't see a problem in that logic. That's a huge problem. Like I said, they've edited their text, or they have demonstrated very clearly their ignorance of what the Scripture actually says, because they are ignorant of it. Isaiah 43, 14. 12 through 14. I, even I, am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. Right? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One. How many? How the Holy Two, or the Holy Three. Holy Four, or the Holy Group. How many times does it say in the Scriptures, the Holy One, a bunch? Everywhere you go, God says, I'm the Holy One. He never adds any other to it. He never says, I'm the Holy Group, I'm the Holy Minority. He says, I'm the Holy One. Count them carefully. How many? There is only one. Likewise, the angel comes to Mary. And she's stumped of how an angel's coming to her. Now she says, he says that I'm going to have a child. And, and how's that going to work since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers her by saying this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One, mark it carefully, who is to be born will be called the Son of God. How many? Holy one, not two, not three, not five, not a group, only one. Again, either the angel's wrong or Jesus is God. He is God. And then with regards to worship, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name, and you shall not follow other gods. And then here in Hebrews, 
When God, again, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Either God forgot, oh my goodness, I forgot what I said back there in Deuteronomy, or his son is actually not the exception to that. His son is actually God, and there's no exceptions. You see, understand, the, the church of recent years, I should say, was accused early on. They said, everybody's you know, redacting history. Everybody likes to rewrite history as we go along and just rewrite it. And one of the things they say is that the church invented this whole issue of the virgin birth. Years later, decades, even hundreds of years later, the, whole, the church came up with this whole issue of Jesus being virgin born in order to exalt him in the eyes of to, 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 to promote this deception, as they say, of Christianity, this, this farce upon the people. And so in order to exalt him, they give him this position of being virgin-born. And again, uh, they say we, we came up with this scenario somewhere later on after the actual life and times of Jesus, who they say was not virgin-born. So understand, as we've seen in the Scriptures, Jesus being virgin-born because he is the Son of God and the fact that Jesus is God himself, is clearly and irrefutably taught by both Old and New Testament. It's always been there. It's not just a New Testament thing. Oh, they say, oh, well, they wrote it in the end of the New Testament because it was part of their policy. Listen, I just showed you. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, more, ple- more, more prevalent. And the Old Testament existed 400 years before a single line was written in your New Testament. New Testament is just there to, to enhance it, to, to bring it forward, to bring it out. But it's always been there. From the first chapters of the Bible, we have God being one and yet plural. God promising in the third chapter to bring a a child through a virgin, through the seed of a woman who would conquer and kill the snake. We have it all the way through. So some say, some say the Bible would be a whole lot easier to believe without the miracles. And, And I would say, yeah, but it wouldn't be worth believing. It just wouldn't be worth it. I want to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me and as we think about what God has said to us today, what we can learn from Scripture. You see, I, I know I've said it many times, and I certainly believe it. That Jesus has to be God. Because I'm telling you the truth, if he's not God, we're going to perish in our sins. Because we have no Savior. We have no way to be forgiven. We have nothing, no sacrifice. There's nothing to keep us from having God's laws fully enforced on us. But God, as the scripture says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he he sent his son to become one of us. In order to be his son, he had to be virgin-born. And because he is his son and because he is virgin born, listen, he is none other than God himself. The only Savior, the only Redeemer. You must turn to him to be saved. Have you turned to Jesus? Have you turned to him? Turn to him today. Accept him not as just the Savior of the world, but as your personal Savior. Have you claimed him as your personal Savior? You've got to claim him. You've got to claim him. Don't step out of this life without him. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are God. I thank you that we can freely worship you and that there is no God besides you, that you are one and only, and yet 
the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or we don't understand it. It is confusing, and yet it is what it is. Your scriptures say what they say, and it's for us, for us to believe it. So we believe it today. We believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for doing these things for us. Thank you for revealing and teaching these things to us, Lord, so that we can know. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.